Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, Interactive Associate and Producer. Happy New Year, listeners. This is the January episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. For those keeping track at home, this is volume 117, number one. And unfortunately, Micah Hill is out this month, but we are joined with Kurt Barnhart, Pietro Bortoletto, and we have Erica New, one of our interactive associate editors joining us as well. And as always, our fabulous producer, Michael Simone. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Eve. Great to be with you. Hi, Eve, and hi, Erica. Thanks so much for having us. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here today. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I'm so excited to be with you. Excellent. So we've got a lot of great articles in this month's episode. We are going to start by talking about the inklings. And this is a really challenging piece in terms of how we think about progesterone. It is titled Outlining the Practical Options for Coping with the Shortcomings of Vaginal Progesterone Recently Unveiled in Frozen Embryo Transfers. And it's written by one of the editorial editors, Dominique de Ziegler. And this really talks about the older thought process that vaginal progesterone achieves intrauterine levels and those intrauterine progesterone levels should in theory be similar to serum levels when progesterone is given intramuscularly. Dr. DeZiegler talks a little bit about some of the data and especially the more recent data looking at lower live birth rates when using vaginal progesterone only in frozen embryo transfers. And the hypothesis and the main thread of this inklings is really the hypothesis that progesterone may also exert extra pelvic actions, um, things like on the immune system for generating an immune tolerance condition necessary for pregnancy development. And so perhaps vaginal progesterone is not sufficient alone, and it's really the serum levels that contribute to the positive effect that we see. So really interesting. I encourage our listeners to read this and a lot to think about with that inklings. All right. Well, I'm really excited to have Pietro talk about our seminal contribution. But before we dive into that, a question for you, Kurt, is what exactly is a seminal contribution? Well, thanks for asking, Eve. Of course, a seminal contribution by definition is something that's going to really make an impact in the field. How I decide on those each month is a combination of the reviewer's scores of the paper and also my reading of it. So I'm hopefully introducing to you papers you should pay special attention to and will actually impact your practice for us, our field in general. And this month's seminal contribution was a very interesting paper by Dr. Jennifer Nudson et al. entitled Common Practices Among Consistently High-Performing IVF Programs in the U.S., a 10-year update. So for those who have been reading FNS for a while, you'll know that this study was initially done 10 years ago by the same author team. The goal of assessing best practices and shed light on what high-performing clinics were doing well so that other clinics may want to emulate. Here we are a whole decade later repeating the study to see what's changed. To start, 
the authors defined a high-performing IVF program as those having the highest cumulative singleton live birth rate in women aged 37 years or less in the years 2016 and 2017, as well as performing over 100 cycles per year. The age limit was chosen to avoid penalizing clinics with a high proportion of older patients, and the cycle limit was chosen to avoid spurious results from a small number of cycles. 13 clinics were identified, and their medical directors were surveyed about everything from patient selection, medication use, stimulation protocols, to laboratory procedures, and embryo testing. Here are some of my favorite takeaways, because the paper is definitely worth a read if you're trying to see how your clinic compared to these 13 programs. With regard to access to care, 10 of the 13 clinics had age restrictions on the use of autologous oocytes, with the median age being 45 years as a limit. 12 of the 13 clinics had BMI restrictions on the use of autologous oocytes, with a median limit of 40. In terms of cycle management, the majority of clinics use birth control pills for IVF starts, with a median use in 65% of cycle starts. The majority measured a serum progesterone level, with equal distribution of when they measured it meaning a third measured with every blood draw, a third measured in the late follicular phase, and a third only at the time of trigger. Of the 10, thir of the 10 programs that performed fresh transfer, there was a split between the clinics on when they started progesterone in relationship to the retrieval, with some starting on the evening of retrieval and others on the morning or evening after retrieval. Finally, in terms of the use of PGT, eight of the 13 clinics performed ICSI for PGTA, I think is interesting and certainly a topic many of us have been discussing recently. Nearly all clinics, 12 of 13, recommended PGTA for women aged 38 years or older. Nine clinics elected to receive mosaic reports from PGTA and would transfer mosaic embryos. The majority of clinics that reported transferring mosaic embryos varied based on the number of chromosomes involved and the percentage of mosaicism, with most transferring up to 50% mosaicism rates. Three clinics reported transferring aneuploid embryos. Very interesting. There's a lot more in this paper, and this is super interesting to read, as well as a great accompanying editorial by the team at Oklahoma and with the special guest, Luis Hoyos. But I want to talk a little bit more about PGT and the PGT practice pattern. I think this group of listeners, and certainly my co-hosts here, have all read the recently published New England Journal paper which as you all know, is a multi-centered randomized trial of over 1,200 good prognosis Chinese women who were randomized to either PGT or cryo up front, followed by single embryo transfer. The study was designed as a non-superiority trial. And the authors hypothesized that the cumulative live birth rate after transfer of euploid blasts would not be more than 7% greater than the rate after serial transfer of untested blasts. Importantly, and a big asterisk here, only the three top quality embryos were biopsied and available for transfer. The big headline that this paper generated was that the cumulative live birth rate was statistically higher in the conventional IVF group compared to the PGT group, 81 versus 77%. However, Eve, Kurt, and Erica, we all know that there's a bit more to this paper than meets the eye. Since its publishing, several conversations have happened both online and offline about the study's methodology and some of the secondary findings. I think it's probably worth us discussing this paper as a group, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you think this study has a couple of limitations that are worthy of highlighting. Eve, Kurt, Erica, what do you think? I think the 
asterisk that you mentioned is probably the, the single largest flaw of the study. The way that I think most of us view PGTA is as a selection tool. You're not going to change the composition of the embryos that you have in an entire cohort, but PGTA will certainly help you to pick the single best embryo for transfer. And when you have in a young population, I think it is debatable whether or not PGTA is beneficial. I don't think that this study adequately was designed to really address that question. But I also think that when you have a high pretest probability of having euploid embryos, that you're not going to see as much benefit from PGTA in this population as you would in an older population. And so I think the jury is definitely still out in older patients. I think that the the fact that the selection for this study was really poor when they looked at cumulative live birth rate, not all of the patients in the PGTA arm had three embryos to transfer. And so you're not comparing embryo per embryo, and I don't think that it's a fair comparison. The other point that I want to bring up, and I wrote this as a letter to the editor to the New England Journal of Medicine, I don't know at this point whether or not it's going to be accepted, but I was really taken aback by the editorial to this piece that talked about the Hippocratic Oath and first do no harm. And I think that there is real harm in not offering PGT for older patients and particularly as we are on the brink of Roe being upended. And I think that the idea of reproductive choice needs to be taken into consideration. And we have to look at this from the lens of reproductive choice. And especially in states where termination of pregnancy may be really prohibited, we cannot be restricting PGTA. And to imply that physicians are not adhering to the Hippocratic Oath because of this study is a real disservice to our field. I'll take the contrary point to that. Um, we can we can all look at study methodology and point to flaws. It's very easy to find a flaw in the paper. But I learned a long time ago when I was studying epidemiology, once you finish that exercise, do you still believe the results and do the results tell you something? And what this study is saying is looking at the three best embryos, applying PGTA to those three best embryos with the thought of finding chromosomally number one first and therefore improving pregnancy rate is just simply not true. So if you have three good embryos, you shouldn't be doing PGTA, according to this study. And I happen to think cumulative pregnancy rate is the correct outcome in this case, not one embryo per embryo. And I also think that three embryos, although maybe not of my choice, um, is not a bad place to start because many people don't go beyond three embryo transfers. So all of those things tell us that PGTA is not helping us find the best embryo in people that have three good embryos. And I've also noticed a shift and it really amazes me. When we talk about PGTA, what are we looking at as an outcome? I would bet the majority of people in this podcast think of PGTA as a way to increase your pregnancy rate. I've heard other people say, no, no, PGTA is only a way to find an abnormal embryo and not transfer it, even though you might not have transferred that embryo. And you just brought up it's a way to, to reduce trisomies. But the number of trisomies is so incredibly small that PGTA is not an efficient tool to find trisomies. So we keep shifting the goal, so to speak, about why we're doing PGTA when none of these things are bringing as superiority. Now, there's reasons to do it. I'm not saying it shouldn't be a good tool, but I find it hard pressed to find evidence that it's actually helping us and what we think it's helping us do. Another point I think that a lot of people bring up 
regarding the use of PGT is that it's a, a means to get to single embryo transfer. And I think the, the PGT enthusiasts think it's the only way to get to single embryo transfer without sacrificing clinical pregnancy and live birth rates. And I think this study, in addition to what it showed with however many asterisks you want to add, when you compared a single embryo transferred tested versus untested, you're not really sacrificing a lot in terms of the implantation, clinical pregnancy, and live birth rate. And you're still managing to achieve single embryo transfer with a low twin and no triplets. I also think just going back to the point of pretest probability and that in a young, healthy population, the average age of these women was under 35. And so in a young, healthy population with a high likelihood of having multiple euploid embryos, I think the PGT probably does not have as much benefit as we may have thought. I just don't think that you can generalize these findings to an older population where we look at the time lost, the ability to bank embryos for future family building. And again, even though trisomies are rare events, they're very real. And I think that we have to look at it from that full scope of reproductive choice in terms of banking, family building, decisions regarding pregnancy termination, and all of the other factors that go into play that are outside of cumulative pregnancy rate. I don't disagree with you, Eve. It, it's, just, we, it's just not clear what the indication is. If you want to know what the status of the embryos are, PGTA is a great test. But I'm getting more and more convinced that if you want a higher pregnancy rate, it's not helping you. If you want a decreased miscarriage rate, it didn't help you in this study. It didn't help you to time the pregnancy in this study. So it's really a question of choice. And you just said there's no evidence under 35, yet I would bet a lot of listeners here are doing an awful lot of PGTA on women under 35. So I guess, Kurt, if you were to summarize these findings in one or two sentences, how do you think about it? I don't see the PGTA as a harmful test to flip the way around. The pregnancy rates were, again, similar and not inferior. But I think we're fooling ourselves and our patients to say that there are great advantages of this technique. Pietro, what do you think? There is some nice safety information that I think gets buried in this manuscript when we've talked a lot about risk-reducing IVF care and does PGT add a second hit for women at risk for things in a granted 20, average 29-year-old population with a lot, not a lot of comorbidities, we're seeing that both the obstetric and the neonatal outcomes are similar, whether or not there's a trophectoderm biopsy performed on, the, on that embryo. You did not see crazy high rates of preeclampsia, prematurity, abruption, some of the placentally mediated outcomes that we talk about that PGT may increase the risk for. The only thing I think we're seeing that's still pretty dramatic is there's a really high rate of large for gestational age when we're transferring frozen embryos. 17% in the PGT group, 19% in the non-PGT group. There's definitely something about that extended culture and the freezing of the embryos that's causing some really big babies being born from what we're doing. Pietro, I just want to caution a little bit. You wouldn't expect to see safety signals in a randomized trial. That's not why they're that's why they're performed. You need you know larger trials. And I'm going from memory here, but I know there's a paper that is or will be in fertility and really that shows that there is higher um, preeclampsia and hypertension in mothers that use PGTA. Eve, I agree with you on perhaps overstating the do no harm, but the big debate here is if there is no benefit and it's an added cost and added procedure, is that no harm? Or So Kurt, we have a lot to debate. 
I, I do, but I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to fight back on that, that I know trisomies are rare, but when you are the woman who's carrying a trisomic fetus and you don't want to carry that, that baby to term, and given the current political climate, the Supremes have just heard Dobbs versus Jackson's women, Women's Health Organization, we're on the cusp of reproductive choice changing. I think that there is real harm in restricting PGT. And I think it's a really naive statement to not address the individual experience. Don't disagree with you, but while these reproductive changes are gonna be historic, I wanna be careful you're not setting a new standard that we should be eliminating trisomy by screening all women under 35 with PGTA. I mean, that's, that's, that it would be an entirely new standard. No, I am saying that these data for women under 35 cannot be generalized to older patients and that to say that PGT offers more harm than benefit and we took a Hippocratic oath to do no harm, I think completely undermines the fact that PGTA can be very beneficial in an older patient. And I also think that we can't ignore the individual experience. And while I know that large data and randomized trials are really important for global pictures, I think at the individual level, as reproductive choice is really under fire and imminent threat in many states, that we have to be mindful that it's not just about cumulative pregnancy rate, but it's about the idea of being able to choose what to implant, when to implant it, and whether or not you can carry a pregnancy to term. Again, your passion is fabulous, but just want to be clear to listeners that this is a, now a new indication for PGTA rather than just enhancing pregnancy rates. Just I'm a little annoyed that every time data comes out, you change the goalposts. And I'm not, I don't mean you particularly, Eve. I'm, I'm just saying that you know every, every time you get information, well, that wasn't the reason I was doing it in the first place. Well, sure it was. Well, look, I hear you on it, but I, I'm very fearful, but I think women are in real trouble. Like I, yeah. I really think that we are looking at this through very different lenses and I agree yours is the data driven lens and mine is the individual reproductive choice lens. But I think that there's room for both in that conversation. Agree with that. Well, I think I'm glad we got a chance to bridge and talk a little bit about this. I think that I'm curious to see what the letters to the editor bring. I'm curious to see what the reverberations in the field are. I'm curious to see where we move forward from here. I'm going to transition and talk about something that's a lot less controversial and actually a really great piece. This is Optimizing Natural Fertility, a Committee Opinion. And I think this is a great document. I can really envision this being widely read by patients who are looking for evidence-based recommendations and how to best maximize the chance of conceiving without medical assistance. I also think it's a really great document to give to our OBGYN specialists who often see patients as they are stopping birth control and beginning to try to conceive. And I think, of course, it's an excellent refresher for the REI in practice or the REI in training to really review the evidence-based recommendations. I'm gonna just give a pretty high-level overview. Most of these should seem pretty intuitive. The document starts with some very important definitions. First, the definition of fertility 
is the capacity to produce a child. Simple, elegant, and to the point. Definition of infertility is the failure to achieve a successful pregnancy after 12 months of regular, unprotected vaginal intercourse. A point to note, the definition of infertility actually does not change to six months in women over 35, but rather earlier evaluation and treatment can be justified in this age group. The fertile window is defined as the six-day interval ending on the day of ovulation. The document then reviews the frequency of intercourse. Doesn't matter if it's every day, every other day, no harm in increased frequency. Shout out to some older data showing daily ejaculation in some men with oligospermia may improve sperm quality. And for what it's worth, I think it's actually a useful pearl with couples who have failed IVF and it's an easy intervention to consider in some patients. There was a nice review on different types of fertility awareness methods, as well as the pros and cons of close tracking. Pro, it may shorten the time to conception, and con, it may increase sexual dysfunction. I really enjoyed the lifestyle interventions and especially the review of data on the, quote, fertility diet and the benefit that has been reported in couples attempting conception without medical intervention. But this diet did not improve ART success. On the other hand, the, um, quote, pro-fertility diet did show benefit in ART. So definitely take a close look at this section in these data on how to best counsel patients regarding diet and nutrition. As we all know, smoking reduces fertility, alcohol data are mixed, high caffeine consumption greater than 500 milligrams per day has been shown to be associated with reduced fertility, but moderate caffeine consumption is okay. Cannabis is associated with lower sperm counts in men, and the study references ACOG's document on cannabis in pregnancy and fetal neurodevelopment, but there are no data yet on fertility. The document concludes with a section on environmental exposures and highlights the effect of air pollution in reduced fertility and increased miscarriage. And I think overall this piece is packed with great information and is another really stellar document produced by the ASRM Practice Committee in conjunction with SART. Kurt, I'm gonna turn it over to you to head up the andrology section and talk about the first paper here. So thank you, Eve. I'm gonna talk about an andrology article titled Reliability of Sperm Chromatin Dispersion Assay to Evaluate Sperm, Deoxyribonucleic Acid Damage in Men with Infertility. It's from Sandro Estevez and Jamie Gosalves out of Brazil. Now this is an interesting study that I think can teach us a lot about, I hate to say this, teach us a lot about statistics, but maybe not so much about sperm assays. So the reason I'm saying this is this is really a test about reliability of a certain sperm assay test. And this assay test that they're talking about is actually not the one that I use, it's called SDD. So let me describe the SCD test for you briefly. So I think many of us would agree that we've had a long-standing interest in whether DNA integrity in sperm is impactful for fertility, whether that's fertilization or embryo quality or even live birth. But one of the problems is if we believe that, can we actually measure it? And can we measure it reliably? And are we going to get the same answer at a different time using the same test? So the SCD assay relies on the principle that sperm with DNA fragmentation fail to produce something called a characteristic halo of dispersed DNA loops 
So in other words, if you denature the DNA of a sperm and the DNA is actually in good shape without fragmentation, you will see a manually, you look at the slide, you will see a halo surrounding the sperm. And if that halo is not there, then that's considered, quote unquote, an abnormal sperm or a sperm that has a high number of DNA fragmentations. So really what the test is, is a manual test where sperm suspensions are embedded in an agarose gel on slides, treated with acid denature to generate restricted single-stranded DNA motifs, and then the denaturation is stopped and the sperm exposed to a, lys a lysosing solution to remove the sperm membrane and the nuclear proteins, and then you manually look to see whether you see this halo. What the study finds is that there is a 219 men, and they were observed with semen analysis three months apart, um, and the results of the test were compared on the first analysis to the second analysis. To be a little bit more specific, the number of halos or the a level of fragmentation was divided into three groups, basically low, intermediate, and high. And then the same test was then looked at with those same categorizations three months later. And what you were looking for is reproducibility. Reproducibility in a statistic vein is defined as the overall consistency of a measure. In other words, you get similar results under consistent conditions. Now, there's a bunch of different types of reliability. You can have inter-rater reliability, meaning you look between two different raters. You can have test-retest reliability. You look at one test and then you do the test again. Or you could actually look at you know, two different tests and are they reliably together. This one looked at test-retest reliability. Now, this is, this is different than validity. So reliability means you get the same answer. Validity means that you get the right answer. Just because you measure something consistently the same way does not necessarily mean you're measuring what you think you want to measure. So there's two basic types of reliability that are used statistically in the literature. One of them is called a kappa test, and the other one is called an interclass coefficient. So what this study found was that if you compare the results in the same men three months apart, you get a kappa test of about 0.6, which is moderate to substantial agreement, but you get an interclass correlation coefficient of around 0.86, which actually is pretty good, but more than 0.8 is better. So there's a couple things to distinguish why these tests are different. First of all, the kappa just basically says, did you agree or not agree? Whereas the interclass correlation is a little bit more elegant and tells you how far did you disagree? In other words, the kappa, if you went from low to high, and in, in other words, you, you originally got a low specimen and the next one you got a high and you skip that intermediate class, that's a very big discrepancy. So interclass correlation would recognize that as missing two different categories where Kappa would just say it's different. What's up, Eve? Oh, I just have a question that maybe you sure. can address. And Simone, feel free to like edit this out. But when you say a Kappa is 0.6, what does that really mean? Are you saying that 60% of the time, the response is the same? Like, what does a kappa of 0.6 mean? It's hard to define really elegantly. So it basically means that there's chance in the agreement, and the agreement is around 60% taking into account just chance differences. Um, if there was no difference at all, the kappa would be one. If there was no agreement, the kappa would be zero. So 0.6 is really moderate agreement whereas the interclass correlation was a little bit better at, at closer to 8.8 .8 or 0.86. So if you dig a little deeper into this paper, what they're finding was that there wasn't just random error, that most of the time, if you had a reading of low, you stayed in the low category. And most of the time, if you had a reading of high, you stayed in the high category. 
the greatest percentage difference was those that were in the intermediate category, changing either one up or one low. So there's two ways to look at that. If you have a really definitive answer is really abnormal or really normal, that's probably consistent. But there is still difficulty in reading the intermediates, therefore the interpretation of reading the intermediates. So this basically begs the question of where is the error in this test? So there's moderate agreement, but we could under, there's lots of reasons that there's not agreement. It could be that, A, men don't have the same results three months later, and that's the reason for the agreement. B, it could be the test is still manual and hard to calibrate, so therefore that's the reason for disagreement. And finally, it might be simply the thresholds of the test because we're having trouble dealing with the intermediates, not with the high or low. Now, I use this paper again to show you kind of a statistics lessons for under understanding this. The take-home message is that the SCD test is probably pretty good, but it's probably not the test that most of us do. Most of us are doing the more automated tests, such as the SCSA test or even the tunnel flow cytometry, and I would hope that these tests undergo the same rigor as this particular sperm fragmentation test did. So fun statistical segue there, but I'm still not sure what to do with this test. Um, I still don't know whether I should have my patients get it, and I still don't know what the predictive value of the test is. I just know I'm probably going to get the same answer if I do it twice. So I've seen this SCDS performed before, and I'll tell you that there's an incredible amount of subjectivity scoring something as 20, 25, or 30 percent as a different level of dispersion. And I'll say that in the method section of this paper, the authors made sure to point out that there was one person doing the assessment at each center, and that person had at least four years of experience using this assay. I have to wonder if this is just the human factor in interpreting and scoring these tests that we're seeing show up in some of these statistics. It'd be nice to use things that eliminate the human factor to allow us to get a better sense of is the test performing how we'd want it to perform. And I think this is vision, um, vision learning, machine learning, the, the things that we've been hearing talk more and more about. But I appreciate the statistics lesson. I wasn't very familiar with the K coefficient or the uh, interclass correlation coefficient. Yeah, super yeah. helpful. And I think this the question is still like, what is the clinical implication and the clinical utility of these tests? And I know we've we've been through this on a couple of other episodes in terms of what does high DNA fragmentation really tell us or what does it show and how do we best handle it? Unfortunately, it reminds me a lot about sperm morphology. It, until we can really all agree and, and rate something like this that's subjective in the same way each time, we're really never going to know if the test is any good. Please clap. Yeah. <laughs> I have another andrology paper that was published in this upcoming edition of Fertility and Sterility entitled The Associations Between Depression, Oxidative Stress, and Semen Quality Among 1,000 Healthy Men Screened as Potential Sperm Donors by Yi et al. The authors attempted to assess the association between severity of depression and semen quality in a cohort of 1,000 healthy men being screened as potential sperm donors in China. While other authors have examined this relationship, they've done so at a much smaller scale with single semen specimens available for analysis. The innovation in this study is that they screened men 22 to 45 years old with both normal and abnormal semen parameters with several specimens over the course of six months. 
and these men were also administered the Beckman Depression Inventory, a validated 21-item self-reported questionnaire to assess their level of depression. They analyzed the specimens for traditional semen parameters that we we're familiar with, but they also assessed for three separate markers of oxidative stress, none of which I can pronounce, but you can read in the paper. All three of these markers have been associated with both depression as well as impaired male fertility in previously published literature. So what did they find? Well, in this population of men, mostly in their late 20s, of which nearly 40% smoked, they found that compared to men without depression, those who were classified as severely depressed on the Beckman depression inventory had lower semen volume, concentration, counts, and motility. They also had higher urinary concentrations of the three markers of oxidative stress that I had discussed but can't pronounce. After adjusting for potential confounders, a multivariable mixed effects model showed an inverse dose-dependent relationship between depression severity and all semen quality parameters, such that compared with men without depression, those with severe depression, and I'd like to point out there were only 19 men out of 1,000 with severe depression, they had 25% lower semen volume, 37% lower sperm count, as well as changes in motility and progressive motility. Finally, although a positive dose-response relationship between depression severity and the concentration of one of the urinary oxidative stress markers was found, their mediation analysis revealed that the associations between depression and semen quality were not mediated by oxidative stress markers. The authors postulated that depression is probably exerting its effect on the HPA axis, resulting in changes in LH secretion and downstream free testosterone production, which may be impacting semen parameters. It's important to mention that this paper doesn't establish a causal relationship, as Dr. Schlegel points out in his accompanying editorial to this paper. It does highlight, though, the importance of considering male partners and their mental health as potentially important factors when treating couples. I wish this study had controlled for some other things that we know have been linked to impaired semen quality, such as the use of SSRIs or other antipsychotic medications. We still don't know if men with depression on treatment have improvement in their semen parameters or if the effect is being me mediated by some of these medications. Per Eve, I struggle with what to do with these kinds of studies. While it appears that there may be an association with depression in semen parameters, what do I do with that information clinically and how do I counsel patients who may be worried that this is why they're not getting pregnant after reading this study or reading a headline from the study? I agree. I think it's really challenging to know what the nature of the relationships are, what's causative, what's in effect, and how to best optimize fertility for couples. And I think in this day and age, we put so much pressure, couples put so much pressure on themselves, and there's a lot of blame going on that I think the best we can do is say, be the healthiest you can, take good care of yourself. And if you need to be on medications for depression, by all means, your health comes first. Yeah, I think this is one time in science and, and epidemiology will say, I don't really care the cause and effect. It's an association. We need to deal with both situations. We need to recognize it and take care of people, whether it's a cause or an effect. Yeah, I agree. I'm really excited to hear your take on the next paper, Kurt. And this is in part what Dom Ziegler was talking about in his inklings, but I think a lot of attention being paid to progesterone these days. So I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, thanks, Eve. This is a, a very good paper. I'm, I'm glad we're discussing it. This is by Elena Lombarda and Ernesto Bosch out of IVRMA in Rome and in Valencia, Spain. 
So this study essentially is looking at three groups of patients to see if the way you give progesterone in a programmed endometrial transfer makes a difference. And it's a wonderful reflections by Kate Devine talking about it, who, as we all know, has a lot of experience in this as well. One of the first caveats I'll say is this is a, a very European paper. So be careful with those of us that tr treat in America, where still this idea of vaginal progesterone is a little bit foreign to us, no pun intended. So this is taking very good prognosis patients. 70% of them are actually egg donors. And it's measuring progesterone levels at the day of embryo transfer after giving 400 uh, milligrams of micronized progesterone twice a day as luteal support. Based on that progesterone, they had a threshold level of 9.2. And if they said it was less than 9.2, that was insufficient. And if they said it was above 9.2, it was sufficient. If it was less than 9.2, they added 25 milligrams of subcutaneous progesterone. So basically, they have a group where they're saying my progesterone is where I want it versus a group that the progesterone is lower where I want it, and I supplemented it with progesterone. And of course, when you do something, you have to have a fancy acronym. So it's called ILPS, or Individualized Luteal Progesterone Supplementation. They have a third group, which is a historic group, which basically says I measured the progesterone and I found a level less than my threshold, less than 9.2, but I didn't do anything. So we could use that as perhaps a historical control. Their findings are that when you compare the low progesterone level that's now corrected to the level that's high, you get a very similar pregnancy rate, the relative risk of 1.0 something, you know, very convincingly similar. Um, and if you compare the low progesterone level to the historic group, you get about a 37% increase in pregnancy rate. That's a relative increase, not an absolute increase. So the question becomes that we can, quote unquote, rescue low progesterone levels by adding subcutaneous progesterone to vaginal progesterone. Now, the reflection is neat. It's called basically, how far do we go to avoid PIO? So in other words, how far do we need to go to avoid giving progesterone and oil, which is the standard here in the United States? And Kate Devine wrote a very nice editorial. Of course, she recognized the limits of historical control, which I want to elucidate as well. It may be intuitive that, you know, IVF done a year ago was similar, and therefore I can compare my rates a year ago to now. But of course, we're all striving to improve IVF success rates in every way possible over that year. So you cannot guarantee that you practice it the same way or not. So you need to be very limited when you compare success rates in a historical control. But Kate talks about Look, she did a randomized controlled trial that randomized people to vaginal progesterone as well as progesterone oil and the combination. And she found out that the lowest group was the, the vaginal progesterone, statistically inferior to those that had progesterone. But she also took her data and went a little bit more deeply. In the paper that I just described, they are saying that about 20 to 30% of their patients that used vaginal progesterone had this low level. In Kate's group, she says if you use progesterone and oil, only 3% had that low level. If you use the combination, only around 9% had that low level. And when you use vaginal progesterone, she got also around 30%. So right away, the point is, if you use progesterone and oil, you're not going to get the low level. So there's perhaps no need to rescue. The second point is, we actually use progesterone oil in our clinic. And my fellow Snigda Alor Gupta published a paper, not infertility and serulated, saying that you could rescue frozen embryo transfer cycles by supplementing low progesterone and low estrogen. Now, it's not apples to apples, but, you know, 
I, I, I understand the idea of rescuing a low level might have some benefit. I'm not doubting that concept. The question then comes back to is, why are we using vaginal progesterone? What is preventing us from using something that's been demonstrated in randomized control trials to have a higher pregnancy rate? So there's a couple of surveys that were brought up in both articles saying that 10% of patients express dissatisfaction with progesterone and oil, and that if you compare them directly, 10% uh, express a higher satisfaction with vaginal than in progesterone oil. But you might argue that these are not very large preferences. And I know that if I ask my patients, in fact, I've had this conversation, I give progesterone oil because we looked and it works better. They all say, okay, um, and there isn't really a problem. So perhaps this is differences in European style of practice and American style in practice. But I think the take-home message is if you are going to use vaginal progesterone, then you need to recognize that that might give you low levels and that if you get those low levels, you might have to supplement. An alternative might be let's just avoid the problem by giving higher levels in oil up front, and maybe we can debate this for a long time to see if that's really better medicine or just preference. Yeah, I think there were a couple important points that were brought up in that reflection piece. The part about the survey data that patients don't necessarily think it's worse, I think is really critical. Second, there were data that were presented showing that in the Shady Grove trial, that even in those patients who had low levels of progesterone, they didn't necessarily see lower live birth rates. And so I think it really begs the question of why are we checking the levels and or should we be checking the levels and does an intervention make a difference there? I think too, it's important not to think black and white vaginal or IM in that you can do the combination. And the Dr. Devine's trial did show that there was non-inferiority of doing a combination of the IM injection every third day combined with the vaginal. So that is giving you know the patients a little relief from that injection every day, but also not sacrificing their outcome. Yeah, we're learning a lot about progesterone supplementation, and um, I'm hoping that we're not finding distinctions without a difference. But I think it does come down to what your practice is good at, making sure the patients do it correctly, and that's probably more important than anything else. If you wanted to learn a little bit more about progesterone in FET cycles, Fertility and Sterility hosted a great journal club global from ASRM recently where we had Kate Devine as well as the group from the University of Iowa and the organizers of the PREM Pro trial talk a little bit about the role of progesterone supplementation in FET cycles. And you can find that online on fertilitysterility.com. A minor point is I did find it interesting in the article here from Spain that they found the associations with women with low progesterone were higher weight, higher BMI, and lower estrogen. I thought the issue with at least I am progesterone in obese women was we weren't getting the injection to the muscle and as opposed to the subcutaneous fat. I didn't know the same association was found in vaginal progesterone and BMI. Interesting. I think we're going to transition away from frozen transfers and talk about fresh cycles. And Eric, I'm going to turn it over to you to look at the efficacy of IV acetaminophen for perioperative pain control for egg retrievals. I will let you take it from here. Yes, yeah, so we have an excellent article called Assessing Efficacy of Intravenous Acetaminophen for Perioperative Pain Control for Oocyte Retrieval. And this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial from Sasha et al. As we all know, there's been very heavy emphasis to avoid opioid pain medications amid the current opioid crisis. So we're always looking to other methods to manage patients' pain. And while opioids are often used after surgeries, 
the most common surgery we perform as REIs is often oocyte retrieval. So if we can come up with some alternatives to manage patients' pain, it's going to be excellent for everyone. So this study wanted to look at whether IV acetaminophen could reduce patients' pain after egg retrieval. They had three groups. Group A received IV acetaminophen, group B received oral acetaminophen, and then group C received placebo. And one great part about the study was that all the patients, if they were receiving IV, they did get an oral placebo and vice versa. So they did a really good job blinding the providers and patients to their treatment. Patients got the medication while they were in the pre-op area before their egg retrieval. It could be administered anywhere between 30 and 60 minutes before their procedure. And patients had their baseline pain scores recorded prior to the procedure using the visual analog scale. And then they assessed their pain again after the procedure at 10 minutes, 30 minutes, and at the time when they were ready to be discharged. Of note, no one in the study received Ketorolac, um, which I know some providers do use, but this practice, it was from one single large institution. They do not use Ketorolac in patients undergoing fresh embryo transfer, so they wanted to exclude that from this study. But what was interesting was that in their primary endpoint, which was looking at the difference in post-op pain scores, is that there was no difference whether the patients received the IV Tylenol or the oral Tylenol um, and placebo. They did have 159 patients in the study, and they were looking at the difference in pain scores. So you could account for the patient's baseline pain scores, but the differences were 1.3 points on the VAS, which is a scale that goes from 1 to 10 in both the IV and oral group, and it was only 1.8 in the placebo group. In addition, some of the secondary endpoints were trying to see if patients could be discharged earlier, and the, the time after procedure to discharge was very similar in all groups between 57 and 60 minutes. They did notice that the group that received the IV Tylenol did use fewer opioids post-op on average, but it wasn't significant. I really think this study, while excellent and well-designed, was unfortunately underpowered to assess a clinically significant difference in patients' pain after egg retrieval. And another, I think, limitation that probably reduced some of the ability to see a difference in pain was that they did mention that there were, were some differences in the anesthesia providers. While all patients got propofol during the case, some providers gave adjuncts such as lidocaine or ondansetron or even some would give opioids preemptively, and that can definitely affect patients' pain post-op. So perhaps the opioids and the differences in anesthesia were kind of masking the effect that the IV Tylenol could have. And in addition, um, even though the medication was given 30 to 60 minutes before, with that big variation and the fast onset of IV medications, perhaps the medication was starting to wear off or the onset of action could have been um, different in these patients when you're trying to get them out the PACU area so quickly. I also thought it was um, really important to mention, as I said before, that they didn't use Toradol in this study. And if you all remember, there was a recent study published in FNS reports this year looking at Toradol um, used during oocyte retrievals to decrease post-operative narcotic use and showed that it was very successful in up to 50% of people reducing post-op narcotic use. But I know many REIs are still very hesitant to use Toradol after an oocyte retrieval in which a fresh transfer is planned due to worries of it impacting the endometrium. And then some may worry about risk of bleeding after the retrieval. So I was very curious, especially with that recent study in FNS reports that showed that there was not a, an impact of using Toradol on clinical pregnancy rates or post-op bleeding. 
do you all use Tordal in your practice or, or even IV Tylenol? Or what are your methods to control patients' pains in after egg retrieval while also trying to minimize opioids? Yeah, I think the point about the different anesthesia protocols cannot be overstated. And I know, at least at our center, there are certain anesthesiologists, and we have MD anesthesiologists who perform our anesthesia, who every patient wakes up flawlessly. They're not in a lot of pain. It's the combination of fentanyl with the adjunct medications. And I think it's just really hard to rigorously evaluate post-operative pain with one intervention of acetaminophen when the core amounts of narcotic that were given were so varied among all the patients. And so that's really where I struggled with this. Pietro, what do you think? I think the bottom line is if we take a look at the VAS scores across all three groups, they're all very, very low. A score of two is considered mild. Zero is no pain. The average scores were between 1.5 and 1.8. So no matter what we're doing, at baseline, oocyte retrieval is not a terribly uncomfortable procedure. So showing an effect when we already have so little pain being reported was going to be really, really tough. I think one of the secondary goals of this paper was really trying to see, can we improve time through the PACU at discharge? I know when I was at Mass General and hearing a little bit about this study, it's a, it's, it's a single retrieval suite program. And as they got busier throughput through retrieval in the pack, you just became increasingly important. So people were really looking for novel and interesting ways to try to minimize that time that patients recovered. Unfortunately, the study didn't show a, a, a difference aside from one or two minutes, but I think we can take solace in knowing that patients' pain was well controlled no matter what we gave them with less than minimal scores um, being reported across all three groups. Ah, that's a great point. The next article that we're going to review is towards a more accurate prediction of future pregnancy outcome in couples with unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss, taking both partners into account. And this paper was written by Nadia DeFoss with senior author Eileen Lashley from Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands. There was also an excellent reflections written by Natalie Auger and others from the University of Montreal. The study outlines the development of a prediction model for couples who are suffering from recurrent pregnancy loss to help estimate the chance of a subsequent ongoing pregnancy. I really like the premise and the idea of this paper. There are currently two other prediction models that have been developed by other authors but both of these models only use maternal age and number of preceding pregnancy losses. Neither of these two other models have been validated and their predictive performance remains unknown. These authors of this study sought to determine whether predicting the chance of subsequent ongoing pregnancy in couples with unexplained RPL could be improved by taking additional candidate predictors into account and they wanted to evaluate both male and female factors. The data used to build this model was taken from two RPL program units in two Dutch academic medical centers with couples with at least two pregnancy losses before 24 weeks of gestation. They included several candidate predictors, the number of previous losses, whether or not the couple had primary or secondary RPL, the mode of conception and whether IVF was used, they also evaluated maternal and paternal BMI and maternal and paternal smoking status. The data set was pretty robust and included 526 couples with unexplained RPL, 
And I think it's important to understand how to develop a prediction model. So first you have to choose candidate predictor variables. Then you have to narrow down those variables to those with the best predictive ability. You have to specify the model and then you have to assess the model performance. And model performance is assessed based on discrimination, calibration, and clinical use. Discrimination assesses how well a model distinguishes between those patients who will achieve the desired outcomes and those who will not. And we measure discrimination by using the area under the receiver operator characteristic curve. And an acceptable AUC is generally thought to be greater than 0.7, meaning that the model is predictive of the desired outcome more than 70% of the time. Calibration refers to the agreement between observed and predictive outcomes. Ideal slope has a value of one, meaning the observed and predictive values are always the same. Clinical use is meant to identify subgroups of patients who would benefit the most from the model, and it can be assessed using risk stratification tables with estimates of sensitivity, specificity, or likelihood ratios. So the question is, how do we interpret the findings of this paper in light of the goals of developing a prediction model? First, unfortunately, their model did not have good discriminatory performance. The AUC was 0.65. Second, the slope of their calibration plot was 0.77, showing there's a lot of room for improvement. They did not assess clinical use. And so the take-home points here are, it's very difficult to build a robust prediction model. And while we think that we'd love to have a counseling tool in helping couples to predict who's gonna have a live birth, Unfortunately, this model is not yet there. I think the key for them was likely in selecting the best candidate predictors, and I personally would have liked for them to use different candidate predictors. I'm not sure that the use of ART or not is really going to be discriminatory when in deciding who ultimately has a live birth. I would have liked to see more medical factors like the use of underlying medical diseases, diabetes, hemoglobin A1C, even evaluating something like sperm DNA fragmentation as that's been associated with recurrent pregnancy loss. You can also look at things like AMH and other markers of ovarian reserve. And I think sadly, I really wanted to have a new predictor model, but overall this model was only marginally more discriminatory than the other two models that already exist. But hopefully we can use this paper as a good springboard upon which further research can be built. Yeah, I think the whole idea of predictive model is academically interesting, but if you step back and look at it for a second, are we actually able to predict these things? Or how close can we you know, get to predicting these things? Part of it is there's a lot that's unknown, and part of it is, you know, some of this might just be hard to predict. Yeah, I agree. I am currently knee-deep in a predictor model data set and really struggling with some of these discriminatory values and how refined do we want the predictive model and lots of different variables that go into it that are just incredibly challenging that I'm working through in some of my own research right now. Erica, I'm going to turn it over to you. This next paper looking at long-term outcome in patients with unexplained infertility and follow-up of the FAST-TRAC and standard treatment trial FAST participants. Thank you so much. Yes, this study, the FAST trial, you may remember it came out initially in 2010 in FMS by Dr. Ryan Dollar et al. 
And this was a follow-up of the FAST trial. So if you remember the initial trial, they were trying to see if doing an accelerated treatment pathway for people with unexplained infertility was preferable to doing the traditional approach, which was three cycles of Clomid with IUI, followed by three cycles of FSH with IUI, and then finally moving on to IVF. So in the initial FAST trial, they had the accelerated group, which skipped the FSH IUI cycles and went directly from Clomid IUI to IVF. And comparing that to the conventional group, they found that they had a faster time to pregnancy, eight months versus 11 months, and showed that there really wasn't much benefit in performing the FSH IUI cycles instead of just proceeding to IVF if the Clomid IUI did not work. So this current study was a follow-up of those patients looking at what their long-term reproductive outcomes were. They reached as many participants as they could from the initial study by phone, and they asked them a series of questions with branching logic to assess information such as whether the couples later received an infertility diagnosis as they initially were all unexplained, um, whether the patients became pregnant after the study, whether they were still trying to get pregnant, just some sort of update on their pregnancy history. Of the initial 503 couples that participated in FAST, they had 286 or 56% who they were able to reach and consented to participate in the study. And it was a mean follow-up time of 14.7 years after the initial study. They did, I thought it was important, look at the demographics between the patients who they were able to contact and those who were not, just to make sure there wasn't a significant sampling bias based on those who could be reached and participate. And some of the, the differences they did see between the groups that the group that ended up participating was that they did have a mean household income that was higher and a higher education level. So there could be a, a little bit of bias. The mean age of patients in this study were 49 and a half years old. And the majority of patients did try to continue to conceive after the trial, 78%. And of those 78%, 80% did achieve at least one live birth, which is excellent. Of the women who did not deliver a live birth during the actual FAST trial, the majority, 87%, were still able to achieve at least one live birth sub subsequent to the trial. And of the women who had a live birth during the FAST trial from IVF, 57% had another live birth after the trial. And as you may guess, those women that had required IVF during FAST, 57% had their second pregnancy also by IVF, but surprisingly, 53% were without any reproductive assistance. 64% of the women who attempted to conceive without treatment after the trial were successful, which seems very high for a population with unexplained infertility. Unfortunately, there were 19 women who never had a live birth during either the FAST trial or in this follow-up period. And the majority of women were satisfied with their ultimate family size, 62%. Um, the average number of children of those that were satisfied was 2.3. So overall, I, I thought this was really reassuring to follow up these patients and know that 81% who continued to try to conceive after FAST were successful. And it was a low number, only 6%, who never achieved live birth. They also looked at whether patients ultimately ended up receiving a diagnosis other than unexplained infertility, and only 20% did. So that was very reassuring, too, that you know, we weren't missing something, but sometimes patients later were diagnosed with endometriosis or other things that might have explained their infertility. It also was interesting to see that these patients who, having undergone prior treatment during the FAST trial, did have a high likelihood of having further children, even without reproductive assistance, which kind of brings me to the question of, in patients with unexplained infertility, does a history of 
infertility treatment, even if it wasn't successful, or achieving a pregnancy through infertility treatment, does that overall increase the likelihood of a subsequent conception and live birth? Just some interesting things to consider in this follow-up. Yeah, I think the key takeaway point is that the cumulative likelihood of having a pregnancy is high. I also want to be a little bit careful in saying that it's 80% because the response rate was, so it was 80% of the 57% who responded. And I can't help but wonder in the non-responders whether or not there was a higher rate of involuntary childlessness. So I think that those are points that need to be considered. And I think also just time. I don't know that infertility itself or infertility treatment increases the likelihood of having a live birth, but I think that the cumulative likelihood of success over time also needs to be factored into the equation. Pietro, what do you think? I love the point that 40% of patients conceived a second live born without the assistance of ART. I think we have all kind of seen this and patients ask us, if I have my first baby through IVF or through ovulation induction, will I then need it for that second or third child? And I think this is a really interesting number to, to be able to counsel patients, granted with several caveats, right? This is a study that was performed in a mandated state a long time ago now. But I think the information is still there that a lot of patients won't need our services for those second or third childs. It didn't account for same partner, though. And so that was the piece where I was wondering how many of those 40 percent, given the 50 percent divorce rate in this country, they didn't ensure that patients were still with the same partner. And so I, I did take that with a grain of salt in that it may be a swapping of reproductive partner that may have accounted for it, the increased subsequent fertility scene. I was a little disappointed to see that only 20% of unexplained infertility ended up with a diagnosis other than unexplained. I feel like that number probably would have been higher, but that maybe just reflects the amount of intervention or evaluation they had after that subsequent participation in the FAST trial. I love the way that this made us think. There's just so many ways to add your interpretation to this data. Are women that get IVF, do they really need IVF? Does IVF actually rejuvenate a woman's reproductive potential? By the way, there's theories in literature that, that suggest this. It's just wonderful. But it, it gives us a glimpse of, you know, some of the statistics that we don't really pay attention to. What happens after the patient leaves our office? Well, all these wonderful things. Is the relationship stable? Do they continue trying? Does the lower stress lead to a better pregnancy rate? Did we overtreat? This is great stuff. I wish I had answers, though. Well, I think this is a really great cap to our January episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. Wanted to thank Erica New for joining us. And I know Pietro has uh, some final parting words for us. Happy New Year, everyone. So if you enjoy the Fertility and Sterility on Air podcast, you'll be excited to hear that in January this month, we are also launching the companion podcast, Fertility and Sterility Unplugged. Unplugged is a slightly different podcast in a slightly different format. It focuses on the sister journals. Myself, as well as the media editors for the other two journals, Dr. Dalen James and Dr. Blake Evans, will pick one article from each journal each month and spend some time really digging into the article, the methods, talking about the implications, and really some of the nuance, these articles that we don't have enough time to cover in this podcast. Occasionally, you'll have some special guests and experts in the field, as well as authors joining us to opine on the science. You can download FNS Unplugged wherever you currently get your FNS on air podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. I look forward to continuing 
more outstanding podcasts covering more outstanding science. Thank you all. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Thank you.